Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics ever, masturbation. While masturbation is not a dirty word, it's not uncommon to feel shame and guilt when it comes to self-pleasure. This is due to a combination of cultural norms, religious influences, lack of meaningful media representation, harmful myths we all learned in sex ed, and more. But masturbation should be talked about in a positive light, and we should be honest about the very real positive impacts it has for people, especially for women and people with vulvas. That's why I decided to take pleasure into my own hands, figuratively and literally, with a magic wand masturbation experiment. In a nutshell, I wanted to answer one question. What is the impact of daily magic wand use on my health and wellness, as well as my sexual experience, when compared to regular sexual activity and no sexual activity? Want to see how the experiment unfolded? Check out sexedwithdb.com slash magic wand experiment now. Here are my top three favorite things I love about Uberlube. Number one, Uberlube makes sex feel a lot more pleasurable. It's as simple yet as powerful as that. Number two, Uberlube is recommended by leading doctors and its body-friendly ingredient list is widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. And number three, Uberlube will not stain clothing or bedding. Any spills can be easily cleaned with detergent and water. Get your bottle of Uberlube now with code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Are you falling into a pattern with your partner? Looking to spice things up but aren't sure how? Me and my partner exit our ordinary with Lion's Den. Lion's Den has hundreds of your favorite brands to help you and your partner reconnect or try something new. From novices to dungeon masters, there are products for every comfort level. With 50 plus years in business, Lion's Den is here to help. Can't make it to a local store? Shop online and chat with a customer service team member while you shop. Lion's Den offers our listeners 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. Think about your medicine cabinet for a hot second. What's in there? Maybe you have your deodorant, face wash, toothpaste, condoms, plan B, and a new moisturizer. But what if you added abortion pills or a plan C, just in case your plan A and plan B didn't work or wasn't available? Let me tell you about getting access to abortion pills in advance with Plan C. Go to plancpills.org and select the state or territory that you live in from the drop-down menu. Then look for the Pills in Advance icon by the provider or resource. Plan C shares not only how to get abortion pills in advance by mail in your state, but also real-time abortion care options, as well as info on in-person clinics, hotlines for support, FAQs, and more. Follow them on social media at Plan C Pills and visit PlanCPills.org to learn more, get abortion pills in advance, and join the movement. Hello, everybody. Happy almost holidays. I cannot believe that we are at the end of the year here and we are halfway through the season, but we have a very exciting and energized episode for you today. We have Jess and Imani from the Boom Lawyered podcast. Uh, They are lawyers, they are journalists, they are hosts, they are geniuses. I could listen to them speak honestly all day. And in this episode, we talk specifically about 
the Supreme Court and abortion pills. Uh, there was some breaking news uh, last week that the court agreed to take a case involving abortion pills. And we have Jess and Amani on today to really walk us through what that means, what's at stake, and what we need to be paying attention to. So this is a really, really fantastic and timely episode for you all. Uh, just reminding you about our, speaking of abortion, amazing merch. If you go to sexedwithdb.com slash merch, we have hats that say OMW to my abortion. If you want, we have stickers, we have mugs, we have a ton of good stuff. So check that out, sexedwithdb.com slash merch. And once again, everybody, halfway through the season, I really hope you have a fantastic time with your friends, with your family, with your partner, by yourself, with your pets, whoever you love and you're with. I hope you have a really, really great holiday season. Love you all so much. Thank you so much for tuning into Sex Ed with DB and to supporting and for supporting me and the podcast. And here I am with Jess and Imani. Good morning, Imani and Jess. Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. How are we doing? Great. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, really pleased to be here. Of course. Really, really happy to have you. Uh, Why don't you both go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your work at Rewire and on the Boom Lawyered podcast. Sure. Amani, who who wants to go first? (laughs) This is the problem with us is we're both too polite and not ego-driven that we're like, no, you should go first. I'll go first. (laughs) Yes, Uh, do it. My name is Imani Gandhi. I'm now editor at large at Rewire News Group. I've been at Rewire through its many iterations since 2013, I think. I started as a contractor in 2012. And yeah, I've been with the organization for a long time. Started out as senior legal analyst, um, then moved to senior editor of law and policy. Now I'm editor at large. And basically throughout the 12 years I've been doing, I started out doing investigative reporting um, at Rewire, which was not suited for me because Jess was over like in the legal department by herself, just covering everything. And then like around maybe 2016, I moved over to the legal department. That's when Jess and I started really working together in earnest, started our podcast in 2017. The rest is history. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. How do I follow that up? Um, I'm Jess Piclo. I am SVP and executive editor at Rewire News Group. I too have been there through uh, its many iterations for just about as long um, as Amani. We started out as contractors around the same time and came on um, the same time. And yeah, for whatever reason, she had been sort of like squirreling away doing FOIA requests for the first couple of years um, and also building out uh, what, a very useful database that we used to have tracking state legislative attacks on reproductive uh, health and access. And then, yeah, we um, sort of joined forces uh, on our podcast and uh, written uh, legal work. uh, And the Roberts Court kind of took it from there, truly. (laughs) It writes itself. So we were just like, hey, let's cover it. (laughs) We'll just be along for this ride, like teaching people what's going on. Yeah, Imani, can you talk a little bit about that database? That sounds really interesting, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny now when I think about it, because when I first started (laughs) in this work, it was like 2011. And in my mind, Jess was already this huge figure in the movement because she had been working with Robin Marty and they'd written this book and- like I'd watched her on Twitter. I'm like, wow, this bitch is really smart, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and at the time I was just kind of like really frustrated with the lack of accurate information about what the bills that were being, that were flying in and out of state legislatures, like what they actually said. And so I started crowdsourcing 
information from a bunch of different people, um, just sort of in my free time. And that turned into a paid position with Rewire, where the first couple of years I I mean, we had, I think we have a, we had a full database of like 10 years worth of legislation where we would go state by state and track what was being introduced, what was passing. And it it was really helpful for me personally. And I think for the organization, because we were able to see what was going to happen really before it happened, because we knew all the steps (laughs) that got us there. Right. So we saw what was happening in Texas before a lot of people did, because we'd been tracking all of the efforts that Texas had been engaged in up until that moment where they passed that big monster HB2 bill that was the subject of that Supreme Court case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. I mean, that I actually wrote a piece back then, maybe 2014, that tracked all of the different bills that had been introduced and failed to pass and the, you know, all of the ALEC members who were taking basically Mad Libs bills that were being written for people, written for them by people like Americans United for Life. And they were just adding in names and states and just passing it through. So it was really useful. Um, and then we kind of ran out of funding to do that. But by then I'd been doing it for 10 years and, and now there are other people that have taken up the mantle. So you can find that information out there. So it's fantastic. But I feel like we were the first one, and I think we should be proud of the fact that I think we were the ones that encouraged other people to start taking the legislative attacks more seriously, not just what what was passed, but what they were trying to do. Well, and just to build off of what Amani said, too, I think it's so interesting the way that um, our origin story is really tied up in the anti-choice campaign to eventually overturn Roe versus Wade. Because what Amani is describing is basically trying to cut through the fog of disinformation around bad reproductive uh, rights and health bills that started way back in 2010, right? Like initially, this is all a response to the uh, presidency of Barack Obama in part, right? Like truly the right wing freaks out about that. And we see an onslaught of all sorts of legislative attacks, but reproductive health is at the center of that with the Tea Party movement in 2010. And Imani sort of coming up with this uh, tautology, really for folks who are starting to see this and as social media is really taking off and people have the ability to connect digitally in new um, and interesting ways to share information, like that really all starts to blossom together. And I just think that's kind of cool. Wow. I would really love to take a college course from the two of you. I feel it very, yeah, I love the way you talk and the way you teach, um, which is why you have a very successful podcast, I'm sure, in addition to many other reasons. But um, yeah, also we've had Robin Marty on the show many years ago. Yeah. She was really, really fantastic. She, yeah, brilliant, really awesome to chat with her. I like to joke Um, that we're in a thruple. Because she, and, because she and Jess were like legitimately work married before I came along. And I feel like I came along and Robin sort of transitioned to doing other things. But no, so yeah, we sometimes, I like to joke that we're a throuple. I'm really into that. I'm picturing like Jess and Robin kind of like hooked arms and then Monty just being like, Emily, just like, scooch you. Yeah, just a little. Just a Me too. In this, in this balance. It's I'm wonderful. It. Three's company is all I got to yeah. say. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Well, today we're here to specifically talk about abortion pills mm-hmm. and the Supreme Court, right? So last week we heard major news that the court agreed to take a case involving abortion pills. And for our listeners who may not have been following this case, maybe who aren't lawyers, maybe they're confused about the way that this case has been moving through the courts. I'll put myself in that category, not a lawyer, confused about the way that the Supreme Court kind of like 
does things and how the, these cases move through, right? And I think that's intentional for the lay person to not know what's going yeah. on. So the powers that be may stay the powers that be, but that's a, a thing for another time. But here are my, you know, three things that I'd love for you to talk about, uh, you know, and take your time. No need to rush through because this is really the bulk of what we got here. So number one, what the heck is this case all about? <laughs> number Starting from basics, right? Number two, what happened in this case before it got to the Supreme Court? And number three, what aspects of the case will be considered currently by the Supreme Court? Sure. Um, I will jump in at the top and then Imani slide in wherever uh, appropriate <laughs> here. So um, this this case is functionally about the FDA's review of uh, medication abortion from 2016 and 2021. Now, for listeners, uh, medication abortion pills were first approved by the FDA way back in, in 2000. Um, and then since then, the FDA has taken a couple different regulatory steps to adjust the way those pills are dispensed. And that has been really the bulk of the fight. This is so what that means is this is a pill. This is a fight about the availability and access nationwide of mifepristone, which is the generic version of mifeprix, which was first approved by the FDA for approval. So it's about that. It's about access to pills by mail, which is one of the adjustments. Um, and it's also about whether or not the anti-choice movement is successful in cooking up a legal challenge to medication and procedures that we know are safe are sound and that the administrative agency, because the record told us through, so, went through all of the necessary legal processes to make the changes that they did. So that top line is whether or not the Supreme Court is willing to entertain a substantive challenge to medication abortion based on a political campaign by the anti-choice movement. Quite succinct. I'm very impressed. Professor Jess is with <laughs> Professor. That was that was really really great. Um, okay, okay. So wrapping our head around this, right? Because I think like maybe what people don't really know is m maybe at least if they follow Sex Ed with DB and other reproductive health organizations, like we have been shouting from the rooftops that mifepristone is safe. It is effective. You know, it's been approved since 2000, right? Like. Basically, what ground does this, you know, movement have to say that it's unsafe when there is research or, you know, what basically like, how are they doing this if, if there's so much research out there? I'm going to answer this question because when Jess, I, I was re-listening to our podcast about medication abortion and I got to the one episode where Jess said this point to me and I think it broke my fucking brain. <laughs> so, so essentially medication abortion is very safe, right? There have been something like 5.8 million uh, medication abortions in the last 23 years and there have only been, I think, like, like a handful of deaths, right? And beyond deaths, like there have only been like a minuscule, like less than 1% of complications. But when you talk about like the safety of medication abortion, this is what Jess said to me. She said, but what about the babies? It's not safe for the babies. That's 5.8 million abortions. That's 5.8 million injuries to babies. And so that's really what this case is about for them, right? For us and for people who have common goddamn sense, it's about healthcare. It's about the need 
for healthcare. It's about making this very, very safe medication more widely available so people don't have to go in and get procedural abortions. It's something you can take at home in the safety of your home by yourself or with loved ones. Like it's just an easy way to terminate a pregnancy. And I think Guttmacher reported that something like more, now we're at more than half of abortions nationwide are medication abortions. They mm. know this. Mm-hmm. They know it's safe. They know it's easy. And that's why they're going after it, right? That's why they're going after it with this ridiculous lawsuit where they say, oh, yeah, we know the FDA approved it 20 years ago, but they did it wrong or they didn't take into account these studies. And all of the studies are junk science studies that have been developed by people in the last 20 years whose sole purpose is to develop junk science around abortion care so that they can peer review each other's junk science studies and then make it seem like it has the veneer of credibility. So it's all on purpose. But yeah, I mean, medication abortion is wildly safe, but it's not safe for the babies, you guys. And that's really the problem. And, right, and right, just right. to build, um, and yes, and on what Amani's saying, I mean, functionally, yes, that's the argument that the anti-choice ma- movement is making is safe for whom, right? And so it's this effort to um, already move the needle around fetal personhood. But I think the junk science is really important, is a really important point, particularly for folks who aren't engaged in this topic on the day-to-day, who have regular jobs that don't involve watching the Supreme Court and the anti-choice movement's shenanigans. They're just trying to like pay rent and get groceries right. There is an entire cottage industry that the anti-choice movement has created around manufacturing scientific conclusions that support their political agenda. And that political agenda is ending access to legal abortion and ending access to legal contraception as well. These are part and parcel of the same campaign. And so way back before we were even talking about medication abortion pills, the Supreme Court had decided a case called uh, uh, Carhartt versus Stenberg. And that involved a partial birth abortion ban out of the state of Nebraska. And anti-choice advocates lost that case because they didn't have the quote unquote science on their side. And so what happened is they took a little bit of time and they cooked up some science and we had an election and things changed. And then we saw a national ban. And then that national ban went up to the Supreme Court. And wouldn't you know it, they now had some different science. And they also had some slightly different people on the court. And a a law that had been previously blocked in Nebraska was upheld in its entirety in in a national capacity in the ban. So I bring that up to say that the anti-choice movement is always studying and they're always learning. And we are seeing the effects of that now. Medication abortion is safer. You know, mifepristone is safer than Tylenol. And carrying out a medication abortion is certainly safer than continuing a pregnancy. Two facts that the anti-choice movement refuses to actually just see. Yeah. I mean, and they try, I mean, they are trying to make it so that you equip, you make They're trying to make it so that medication abortion seems as dangerous as crystal meth. Honestly, I mean, that's what, you know, that's why they're calling it chemical abortion, right? It's a chemical Mm. abortion instead of intentional words, right? They're very intentional with their language. And, and we've seen the fruits of that. I mean, they, 
they create the narrative, they create the language, and then the media picks up on that language and they just run with it. Like they don't, there's no critical thinking when it comes to a lot of mainstream media. That's why I think Jess and I really hold such an important role because not only are we in the abortion rights space and we're journalists and we critically think and we're able to read, understand, and, and explain, but we're also lawyers. And like you said, the system is set up so that lay people don't understand what the fuck is going on. Like it is right. set up. I'm a lawyer and sometimes I don't understand what the fuck's going on. Right. right. You're the expert right. in this field. So yeah. it's 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 intentional. It's intentional to keep people confused, to make and to make it seem as if the Supreme Court is moving in a very judicial way when a lot of times it moves in a political way. Totally. Right. And so just to center us again, right, like this is all about access to Mifepristone, making sure that people are able to get this in the mail when we know that that has made a huge difference. Like studies have shown that when people are able to get access to medication abortion in the mail and don't have barriers to have to go inside, you know, a clinic or see their doctor, you know, that removal of those barriers allows them to get the care they need sooner and more effectively. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, has anything changed right now, today, since the court agreed to take the case? And what is the legal status of Mifepristone today? Nothing has changed. The status quo has remained in place. The entirety of this litigation, which is something that's really important to say over and over and over again, Mifepristone remains approved. You can get pills by mail. The extended time window, which is also part of uh, the 2016 changes, that is unchanged. Um, So right now, the access and status of Mifepristone and medication abortion is as it was pre-lawsuit. That doesn't mean in every state it's accessible via telehealth, for example, right? Like you're, you know, uh, see various um, state restrictions as applied. Um, those those are all still in effect. But in terms of the national campaign to effectively ban medication at certain points, um, we that is that that is not successful just yet. That's good. That's a good thing. Yes. Also, Plan C is one of the sponsors of Sex Ed with DB. Ah. And so this is a perfect opportunity. Like, seriously, go to plancpills.org right now and just see what is the current situation in your state. Mm -hmm. Plan C makes it very easy to figure out, okay, I live in California. I live in Minnesota. And then it shows you exactly how much something would cost, a range of that, the access, the legal risks. And it's just really important for every single person to be informed, if not for themselves, for maybe somebody else that that could help. And Plan C does such important work and I think really, you know, has such a tremendous target on them right now with the anti-choice movement because pills by mail is radical and revolutionary. Why? Because anti-choice uh, clinic harassers cannot do their job when you have the ability to ship people medication and they can safely manage their own abortions, whether at home or with the guidance of a provider via telehealth or whatever, the abuse and harassment angle of the anti-choice movement becomes less effective. And we saw that when the Biden administration first announced some of these changes, right? There was this big uproar that we're going to, that the anti-choice movement was going to start, you know, protesting brick and mortar pharmacies and like, you know, things like that. And, And truly the ability to shame and harass people away from care is removed in large parts by pills by mail. And that's why it's such an important target. I'm about to get personal here. So listen up. I'm going to tell you a fun fact about me that you definitely didn't know. The lube that I use most consistently is Uber lube. I really mean it. If you were here with me right now, I'd tell you to go over to my nightstand drawer 
and tell me what you see. That's right, you would see a bottle of Uberlube. If you've never heard of Uberlube, let me tell you about it. Uberlube is a silky smooth silicone-based lube recommended by leading doctors, and its body-friendly ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. Another amazing thing about Uberlube is that it doesn't leave a sticky residue like water-based lubes do. It lasts for a long time and doesn't stain clothing or bedding. I have three bottles of Uberlube on my bedside table right now, ready when I need it. If you're someone who wants to feel more pleasure in the bedroom, use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Trust me, it's amazing. Let me tell you about one of my favorite pleasure product retailers out there, Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you about them. Lion's Den opened its first retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they've grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the U.S., building their reputation on high-quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex-positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well-being, and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They are simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lion's Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase in-store and online with code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lion's Den toy now. Too often, women of color are a mere afterthought in conversations around wellness. Hosted by me, Dr. Cassandra Dunbar, Be Well Sis is a wellness podcast where women with diverse expertise and experiences have open and honest conversations that aim to make wellness more inclusive and accessible. Tune in every Tuesday for actionable insights and resources to help you live more joyfully, authentically, and beautifully. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Be Well Sis. If you're tired of hearing the same old judgmental, shaming financial advice about buying too many lattes from old white men who conveniently ignore issues like systemic oppression, it's time to join us on Financial Feminist. I'm Tori Dunlap, globally recognized money speaker and educator, and I'm a part of a new guard of financial educators. On Financial Feminist, we don't just talk about money. We talk about the ways women are affected differently by money. We're feminist first, acknowledging that your financial savviness has less to do with your weekly coffee order and everything to do with the fact that we live in a patriarchal society that gatekeeps women, people of color, and other minorities out of conversations and education about money. With fascinating guests like Nadia Okamoto, Maya Vander, Justin Baldoni, Christy Carlson Romano, Queen Herbie, and more, we dive into topics like menstrual justice, the investing gap, diet culture, the psychology of money, and more. Plus, you get bi-weekly how-to episodes like How to Start Investing or How I Saved $100,000 at Age 25. We're smashing the patriarchy and getting rich one episode at a time. Subscribe to Financial Feminist wherever you're listening now. Let's talk about worst case scenario that can happen here uh, at the Supreme Court and the best case scenario. And then I'd love to hear from you two as experts in this field, what do you predict is going to happen? And when is this happening, by the way? What, when, who, how, and where? Um, basically. <laughs> well, all, the, all the W's, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that one thing that's important for people to understand is that it is likely 
that nothing is going to come of this lawsuit that affects affects the access of medication abortion. And that's because the Supreme Court did not take up of the Plaintiffs Alliance for Hippocratic Medicines, but their petition, the plaintiffs were the ones who were claiming that the FDA shouldn't have authorized the Mifepristone back in 2000 and that some of the changes in 2016 were unauthorized, blah, blah, blah. The court didn't pick up that petition. Now, does that mean they're not going to end up addressing those issues? No, it does not mean that because as we have seen, the Supreme Court just kind of does what it wants to do. But certainly the fact that they didn't take up that part of the case indicates that they're not really going to address that part of the case. What they're mainly going to address is standing, right? And that's the the two petitions that they did take. Danco's petition, they're the pharmaceutical company that makes Mifepristone, then the FDA's petition. The main are the main questions are standing. Do these doctors, these quote unquote pro-life doctors who are whining that they are being forced to, against their will and against their conscience, complete imperfect abortion imperfect abortions. That make it sound like it's a like it's a I don't know, like an album, like my imperfect abortion is going to be my, my first song, my singer songwriter album. But, you know, these doctors who have to complete abortions that have complications, they're saying that they're being forced to do this against their will and that their injury. And in, indeed, one of the injuries that Judge James Ho like said out loud in his Fifth Circuit opinion, part of the injuries that people love pregnant women, they love looking at pregnant bodies and you're denying people the aesthetic pleasure of looking at pregnant bodies. But more importantly to these doctors is you're forcing them to do something that they don't want to do. Now, there's no evidence that any of them have ever had to do this. Literally, they did not submit any evidence, any affidavits of any kind suggesting that they had to do this. I think maybe they had one person who submitted an affidavit that their medical partner, their practice partner, had to do something. But really what it was, it's just feelings. It's sadness. It's they don't want to have to do this. And, you know, Jess calls it grievance standing. I call it, ah, this makes me feel some type of way and I don't like it standing. And none of that... All of that is bad for repro healthcare generally, but I think I think in terms of medication abortion access, I think we're going to be okay. Right? I'm is making a face. I'm making a is face. I am less. I'm less optimistic than Amani. So here, okay. like, here's how I think it can go. She's absolutely right. Like, the big nugget of the issue is standing, and standing is a legal principle that says functionally you have to have some kind of skin in the game in order to bring a lawsuit. And that's why Amani's talking about like these. You know, doctors are complaining that they look. They don't even provide abortions. What are they complaining about, right? Um, so functionally, it's that you know the question is whether or not this political group has you know. Uh, enough skin in the game that they can at this stage bring the challenges that they do. So that's part one. And then both Biden administration and Danko said the Fifth Circuit, which is the uh, appeals court out of Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, got it really wrong when they said, hey, we don't think that the FDA did the 2016 and 2021 changes right. And so everybody's got to review that. If the court finds that they that the challengers here don't have standing, which is the point that Imani made, and she feels like good, much better than I do about, then the case is over. Then then we wait until the anti-choice movement regroups and brings their next challenge to medication abortion based on whatever signals Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas give them in their dissenting opinions. If these folks find that this group has standing, then 
I am nervous about the outcome of the 2016 and 21 changes. And I'm also really nervous that that standing doctrine gets to be used in future lawsuits challenging states that have made proactive abortion protections on their books. Because if you are a pro-life doctor and you have the abortion sads about the pill, then you also can have the abortion sads about protections in Colorado or New Mexico, for example. Right. One of the things that I think I find really concerning about the standing posture in this case is the idea that these that abortion providers are inherently adverse to their patients. Right. It's and it's the the quote unquote pro-life doctors who truly have their patients and these pregnant women's you know best interests at heart. Right. The idea that pregnant women, pregnant people are just too either dumb or ashamed or or confused to file a lawsuit on their own behalf and they have to look to these quote-unquote pro-life doctors who really don't care about them, but somehow we're supposed to believe that they do. They're looking to these doctors to speak on their behalf. That's just not reality, right? In reality, all you have to do, for example, is take a look at what's going on in the state-based cases in Texas, right? The Zuruwaski case, where you've got something like two dozen women who are suing along with their doctors, suing the state of Texas, asking for a clarification about the medical exception, because these patients know that it's not their doctors who are adverse to them. It's not the doctors they're going to for abortion care who are adverse to them. It's the state. And who is the state turning to, to target these pregnant people? Quote unquote pro-life doctors, right? These organiz these organizations, these professional organizations of quote unquote pro-life physicians. Those are the people that the state is turning to. Those are the people that the that the state I think wants to be wants to be able to speak for pregnant people on the basis that these pregnant people couldn't possibly be speaking for themselves because if they were speaking for themselves, then they wouldn't be wanting to get abortions in the first place. So I think that's a real a real concern for me. And as Amani knows, the anti-choice movement has been looking at ways to undermine the ability of doctors who provide abortions to have legal standing to assert claims on, beha on behalf of their patients for like decades now. They really are trying to, you know, close off every judicial avenue for patients and providers to proactively assert their rights while sort of flipping the script on anti-choice, on the law in terms of anti-choice protesters, anti-choice doctors, you know, I mean, we see this with abortion reversal, we see this with clinic sidewalk cases, all of it. And I think also, you know, the, the, they want to force people like Kate Cox to have to sue in their own name so that her face and her name is all over national media. And then she's getting death threats. She's getting harassed. She's taking, you know, secret, secret appointments at abortion clinics in unknown places because of the threats to her life. Who wants to go through that? Right? Like who, yeah. who has the time to go through that? Who has the financial wherewithal to go through that? Like it's just. They're trying to just beat people down. And I think what's encouraging to me is that people seem to be more angry than they are scared right now. So I really think that there are going to be more Kate Coxes, more people are going to be suing in their name, not because they're ashamed or embarrassed about wanting or needing an abortion, but because the stigma is such that their lives are actually in danger. Their families' lives are actually in danger. Abortion providers' lives, obviously, we know, are in danger due to this kind of rhetoric that that doctors and providers don't have their patients' interests at heart. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. 
So it sounds like there's maybe some, we're not really sure what exactly is going to happen. We can hope that, you know, a medication abortion uh, continues to be accessible and continues to, you know, we're working more towards right. more accessibility in the states where it's not as accessible. That's the best case scenario. And potentially worst case scenario is that that becomes the precedent to like, essentially, you said other cases can use this case in order to show why medication abortion should not be accessible. I ge yeah, generally. I mean, you know, what's on the line is, are, is the court going to roll back access to medication abortion to functionally the 2000, to the Clinton administration, right? Um, so that's one of it. And also, is the court going to empower um, political organizations to then um, have another arrow in their quiver to go after states that have uh, proactively protected abortion rights and access. And is this uh, case being heard in ju in June? When is this being heard? The court hasn't scheduled arguments yet, but based on when it took the petition up, we can expect it to be um, argued sometime later in spring, probably on the March or April uh, calendar, and then a decision by the end of June. This one will, I will just anticipate, unless they come, if, if we get this decision early, then that's great because they kicked it on the standing issue, I think, and then Amani is, is right um, on that, and like she gets to crow all over about that. So we could be hearing a decision from the court on this anytime in May or June. May or June. Well, okay. What I think is interesting, I just want to say, I, I find Please. it interesting that they're taking it now because really, I mean, if, if the court is as political as I think it is, I would have thought that they would have wanted to wait a year to see who wins the next election. Because if Trump wins the next election, he's putting in whoever the fuck is attorney general. And then we're having Comstock fights and we may not even need to have this FDA fight about authorization. But that's that's probably. Yeah. I mean, Could you explain <laughs> what time. Comstock fights are. Oh, oh. God. Yeah. Oh, Jess, you go. <laughs> no, no, please, please. I was just going to say, okay. yeah, the court could have thought about this petition. 15 times. The court thought about taking the Dobbs case 13, 14 times before it actually took it up. They acted very They <laughs> acted very quickly on this one. So I think to Amani's point, there is that is interesting just in terms of like of like tea leaf reading. But yeah, let's talk about Comstock. You go first. Yeah, so the Comstock Act is essentially a hundred-year-old zombie statute that's no longer that has not been enforced for decades. That essentially makes it um, a crime to distribute sort of lewd, lascivious, prurient materials through the mail. That could that meant anything from like pornography Porn. to abortion pills, birth control, those sorts of things. Now, back in the in the Back in the 20th century, yeah, Playboy and Hustler, obviously, they had First Amendment issues with this, uh, with this law, and they were sort of exempted from it. So now it all remains is just abortion pills, birth control, contraception, medical, and basic ass medical supplies that would be in the mail to be used for abortion, right? Like even just a syringe, if they yeah. can, if they say it's going to, you know, a clinic in Idaho or whatever, we know that clinic performs abortions. We're going to go ahead and try and try and prosecute them under the Comstock Act. The Com now there is a Comstock Act question before the Supreme Court now, right, Jess? 
Yeah. Yeah. Part of the challenge in the Mifepristone case is because of the pills by mail is the is the Comstock Act. So Amani's right. This is, you know, this is a like post-Civil War federal statute that nobody ever got around to taking off the books. So I don't know, like Democrats, progressives, maybe introduce a repeal Comstock Act sometime soon. That would be helpful. But to Amani, comes back and starts starts prosecuting people under it. Right. But to Amani's point, and this is something that I think we really need to be talking about in the same breath as the election. All it takes is an attorney general, a U.S. attorney general who aggressively with his full chest and heart believes in the spirit of the Comstock Act, a Mike Johnson, for example, right? A Speaker Mike Johnson as our attorney general and to just try to start prosecuting uh, folks under the Comstock Act. And what does it do? It bans basically mailing anything related to managing an abortion clinic. So like I, we do a lot of stuff digitally, but you absolutely cannot get your like, you know, surgical ties delivered any other way but through the mail or FedEx and whatnot. So that's why it's so, it's such a big deal. And, you know, it's one of those things that had laid on the books and everybody was like, there's no chance, right? Like right. nobody would ever think about who's going to resurrect the, the anti-porn law. We're beyond that. We have same-sex <laughs> marriage now. We've got Pornhub, for God's sakes. <laughs> for God's sakes. Um, wow. Okay. Thank you both so much for being on. I love your energy. I love your passion. Uh, you're you're very fun to listen to, and I feel like I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. Uh, where can our listeners find you and hear your wonderful podcast? Um, you can find both of us on X.com, <laughs> formerly known as Twitter. I'm Angry Black Lady. Jess is Hegemommy, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. Listen to our podcast, Boom Lawyered, wherever you get your podcasts. Um... Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Rewire News Group on all of the things. Instagram, TikTok now, Threads, Blue Sky, Nordstrom Rack. Like, I don't know. Any other social media <laughs> I was platform. like, Blue Sky? What the hell's going yeah, on here? Yeah, you know, there's just uh, a lot of platforms now that we all have to spread our time amongst. Of course, of course. Uh, well, again, thank you, Imani and Jess. I really, really appreciate you being on today. Thanks so much for having us. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalel. Our producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our producer and communications coordinator is Sadie Leegy. Our marketing coordinator is Kate Fiala. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thanks so much to our featured guests, partners, and listeners. Want to partner with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Instagram at sex ed with DB podcast and on TikTok at sex ed with DB. Want to rep us with some brand new sex ed with DB merch? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash merch to check it out now. See you next time.